scripture is John 4, verses 1 through 30 and 39 through 42. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that, that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to, said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her, her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, the story in this morning's scripture is likely familiar to you. Jesus stops by a well around noontime, hot and thirsty, in the middle of a long and dusty walk. His disciples are conveniently absent, sent to the nearby town to search for food. A lone woman approaches the well. The gospel writer has set the stage for a dialogue that is ripe with meaning. Now Jesus is walking from Jerusalem, where as we heard, he's gotten into some good trouble with the Pharisees and the temple officials. And he's on his way back to the safety of his home base in Galilee. Probably this is an 80 or 90 mile hike. The most direct route takes Jesus and his followers north from Jerusalem through Samaria and past a well that was dug centuries before by the patriarch Jacob. Now, it was Jacob who wrestled with God. It was Jacob, you'll remember, who stole his brother Esau's birthright. And after wrestling with God, Jacob was renamed Israel. And it was from Jacob's 12 sons that the 12 tribes of Israel descended. As a Jew in Samaria, Jesus is an outsider. What would have been self-evident to a first century reader is spelled out in John. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Or in another translation that emphasizes their unclean nature, Jews do not use dishes that Samaritans have used. The enmity between the two peoples was deep, even though, as the woman at the well implies, they share a common ancestor in Jacob. Perhaps their division seems unbridgeable because of this estrangement. Samaritans, once part of the Jewish family, are now aliens, pagans, unclean. But if Jesus is an outsider in Samaria, the woman at the well seems like an outcast. Married five times, living with a man out of wedlock, perhaps it is no coincidence that she is coming to draw water at the well alone, without the company of other women, at the hottest time of the day. As the biblical historian Gerard Sloyan writes, the female member of a people despised by the Jews is provided with a disorderly life to make her trebly a minority person. Woman, Samaritan, polygamist. Now in fairness, other modern commentators believe that the woman may not be a sinner so much as a victim. Her five husbands may be the result of the leveret law of that culture and time that required a brother to marry the sonless widow 
of his deceased sibling. In other words, a woman without a husband or a son to take care of her had no source of support, no legal, accepted, legitimate source of support. Like Jesus' ancestor Tamar in Genesis, she may have been wife to a succession of brothers, all now dead. Without any other recourse, she may be living with a man not her husband, simply to survive. Nevertheless, Jesus engages her, looks into her soul, and offers her the gift of living water and more. Now up to this point in John's Gospel, Jesus has turned water into wine, he has cleansed the temple, his disciples have baptized a number of converts, but he has not declared himself the Messiah until now. The woman at the well recognizes Jesus as a prophet and acknowledges that once the Messiah comes, he will make sense of the divisions between Jew and Samaritan that she finds so confusing and troubling. Jesus responds, I, the one speaking to you, I am he, or literally, I am. Now, this is doubly powerful. On the one hand, Jesus is revealing that he is the long-awaited Christ. On the other, he also is implying his divinity. Because by saying, I am, he echoes the name that Yahweh gives to Moses to take back to the Israelites in Egypt and to prove that Moses is speaking with authority. Thus, Yahweh says, you shall say to the Israelites, I am sent me to you. The historian Sloyan, whom I cited earlier, believes that the main point to this story is not the woman's redemption from sin, so much as Jesus' healing of this ancient rift between Jews and Samaritans, reconciling an unreconcilable difference between estranged members of the same family. The good news comes first, not to the chosen people, in John's Gospel, but to an outcast member of a disowned, red-headed stepchild of a people. And through the woman at the well, many Samaritans come to hear Jesus, and they believe too. In this act, Jesus is breaking down and destroying barriers and creating a new order and a new fellowship the outsiders have become insiders. Those who formerly did not belong are now bearers of the gospel. In this story, John contextualizes what is already happening when he is writing in the first century. The good news is being spread outside of the Jewish homeland and beyond the Jewish diaspora to Gentiles and pagans in the Roman Empire. But John also is signaling that faith, not gender, 
not class, not race, not religion, is the foundation of our relationship with God. Most of us are used to ingesting the Bible in small bites. Verses from the Sunday lectionary that we hear every week, stories from Sunday school that we remember from being children, the familiar parables of Jesus. But if we read scripture more broadly and stand back a bit, we see repeated threads of, or themes running through both the Old and New Testament. In them we hear God's voice. Here is revealed one of those overarching biblical themes. God is revealed not just to the insider, to the chosen, to the select. God reaches out time after time to the alien, to the outcast, to the lowly, sometimes revealing the Godhead to them and sometimes through them. Many of us spend our lives trying to belong to clubs, to cliques, to political parties, to social groups, to tribes. We are social animals. It is hotwired in us. But in trying to belong, we often shut out people who don't seem to really fit in. God knows this and pushes against it, even when creating a covenant with a chosen people. The Old Testament contains recurrent reminders to take care of the traveler, welcome the foreigner, treat them equally under the law. In Leviticus we read, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. To this point, there is a line of biblical interpretation, even, that argues that the city of Sodom's great sin in Genesis was that its people did not welcome and show hospitality to the angels of God who visited Lot, disguised as travelers. The prophet Jeremiah declares, Thus says the Lord, do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. The entire book of Ruth is the story of a foreigner, a woman from Moab, and a widow herself whose faithfulness to her widowed mother-in-law brings her to the land of the Israelites where she remarries and has a son, Obed, who has a son, Jesse, who is in turn the father of King David. One of the most telling tales about God's outlook towards outsiders is the book of the prophet Jonah. And I apologize in advance to my Sunday school class because this is the, this is the field that we tilled this year. The story of Jonah and the great fish is well known in popular culture. God tells Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, capital of the cruel Assyrian Empire, and prophesy against its wickedness. But Jonah instead boards a ship headed for Tarshish 
and tries to sail in the opposite direction to the very end of the earth as he knows it. He's going from the area of Israel all the way out to Spain, about 2,500 miles away in his attempt to flee. A terrible storm rises. The sailors throw Jonah into the water and he is swallowed by the fish. After three days in the fish's belly, Jonah is vomited out on a beach. But lost in this popular memory of the story is the biblical context. Jonah doesn't flee because he's afraid of the Assyrians, even though he has reason to be afraid. They're a pretty nasty people. No, he flees because he's afraid of God's bias towards mercy. Jonah wants Yahweh to smite these foreigners, these enemies of his people. He wants the city destroyed, but he's afraid that Yahweh will have a change of heart, and justifiably so. The Assyrians and their king repent. God has a change of heart and does not rain fire and brimstone down upon them. Jonah becomes displeased and angry with God, and before going off to sulk on a nearby hillside, he prays, O oh Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I'd rather die than have you forgive these foreigners. But God is patient with Jonah. And in one of the best endings of any book in the Bible that doesn't include the resurrection, God tells Jonah, and should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? We see this thread continue through the New Testament. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus heals ten lepers in, the, in a region between Samaria and Galilee. And of the ten who are cleansed, only one, a Samaritan, returns to thank Jesus. Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus asks. Both Mark and Matthew tell the story of the Gentile Syrophoenician woman, whose little girl is troubled with a demon. Despite his initial resistance, to heal for a foreigner. Jesus is persuaded by the woman's strong faith to heal her daughter, even though she is a foreigner. And then, of course, there is Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. In his book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, former war correspondent Chris Hedges tells the story of, Bosnian, of a Bosnian-Serb couple Rosa and Drago Sorak, who lived in the Muslim enclave of Gorsad in what is now Bosnia and Herzegovina. During the Bosnian War in the 1990s, Christian Bosnian Serbs laid siege to Gorsad, trapping the Soraks and their son Zoran and his wife 
in the city along with the majority Muslim population. There were atrocities on both sides of this war. Despite constant shelling and the loss of electricity, gas, and water, the Surak family threw their lot in with the Bosnian government and chose to stay in that city. One day, the Bosnian Muslim police came to take Zoran away for questioning. He was never seen again. Muslim neighbors began to harass the Suraks, and they considered fleeing the city. Some Muslims wanted to kill them. Others protected them. The Suraks often had to hide. There was little to eat. Five months after Zoran's arrest, his wife gave birth to a little girl. The mother was unable to nurse the child. The city was being shelled continuously. Infants, the infirm, and the elderly were dying in droves. The family gave the baby tea for five days, but she began to fade. Meanwhile, Fadil Fejik, a Muslim farmer, was keeping a cow in a field on the eastern side of the city milking it only at night to avoid being shot by Serbian snipers. On the fifth day, just before dawn, we heard someone at the door, Rosa Durak, uh, Durak told Hedges. It was Fadil Fejic in his black rubber boots. He handed up a half liter of milk. He came, to the, he came the next morning, and the morning after that, and after that, other families on the street began to insult him. They told him to give his milk to Muslims to let Chetnik children die. He never said a word. He refused our money. He came for 442 days until my daughter-in-law and granddaughter left Gorzad for Serbia. The Sur Suraks also eventually left and returned to Serbian territory. Hedges writes, the couple said they grieved daily for their sons. They missed their home. They said they could never forgive those who took Zoran from them. But they also said that despite their anger and loss, they could not listen to other Serbs talk about Muslims or even recite their own sufferings without telling of Fezik and his cow. Here was the power of love. What this illiterate farmer did was the life of another human being who might never meet him long after he was gone. In this act lay an ocean of hope. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the sound at the door, the woman in the hijab and the man who does not speak our language. Jesus is the stranger at the well. We only have to open our eyes and our hearts and let him in and then drink from that ocean of hope. As is written in the book of Hebrews, let brotherly love continue do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware.
Amen.